I'm your host, Alex Gray, and welcome to season two of the International Classroom Podcast, where we explore and celebrate the diversity and innovation of education around the world. In each episode, we bring you insights and discussions from experts and educators who share their invaluable experiences, the challenge they faced, and the solutions they've championed. Whether you're an educator, a student, or simply someone with a passion for lifelong learning, we invite you to join us on this journey. Today, we have a very special guest in Amanda Bickerstaff, the co-founder and CEO of AI for Education, a global initiative that aims to empower educators and learners with artificial intelligence. Amanda, a former teacher, researcher, and policy advisor who has worked in various educational settings across the world. She's passionate about using AI to enhance learning outcomes, equity, and access in education. In this episode, we're going to talk to Amanda about her vision, her projects, and her advice for educators who want to leverage AI in their classrooms. Now, before we start, a quick reminder, make sure you follow us on your favorite streaming platforms to never miss an episode. And if you're watching us on Deep Teaching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and hit the like button. We appreciate your support and feedback. Now, on to the episode. Amanda, thank you ever so much for joining us on the International Classroom Podcast today. Um, I'm really interested in your backstory because I think we have a lot of things in common from biology point of view uh, and that kind of teaching things and getting into AI. Um, but I'm really interested how you transitioned from what being a biology teacher into obviously what you do now. Yeah, it's a wild ride. I, I, I joke that I've kind of been like the devil's wear Prada assistant of like education where I've had like every job, including going to try to find a chocolate cake for the head of the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Foundation at a meeting once. And so, um, you know, I think that for me, like the, the path from teacher to ed tech CEO and now founder has been a really interesting one. It started, um, in a kind of untraditional way in the sense of I didn't necessarily want to be a teacher at first. I wanted to help people, um, which is a big part of like my, you know, motivation and wanted to be a doctor, but had an autoimmune disease in college that made it very clear that that wasn't something I could do. So I was like, what is the next best thing? Like, how can I help people? And so there are alternative routes to certification here in the U.S. that allow you to like be a teaching fellow or teach for America, which is um, I know there's teach first in England. And so literally like May before I graduated, I came up to New York City, I interviewed um, and committed to at the time was like, you know, with my health, I can commit to three years. And it's a bit, you know, touch and go. But that luckily they said, yes, we'd love to have you. And I ended up being one of the only, you know, early graduates going into the science focused program. I was in a, a low income school, high complexity and um in New York City, it's actually the the campus I taught at is what Concrete Jungle was written about. So like it's a it's a known for a very long time as a very complex environment. And through that, really immediately started to see um, the complexity that educating students in environments in which the outside environment is and the inside environment are not conducive to equity, to access, to support, um, is something that really stuck with me for, for my entire career. And it's something that like, I think about a lot. I still think about, you know, going into classrooms and, and, and knowing that like, I was not the most important thing for that student, like sleep and, or safety or food scarcity was the most important thing. And then how do you find a path between that to still teach students, connect with them and create relationships? So, you know, I did that work um, and ended up leaving after the three years and um, through that got into a PhD program 
And again, I think, um, you know, the path is quite funny. Like, I don't think I liked school. I thought maybe I did because I was good at school. And then I got into a PhD program and realized if I never had to write another paper, if I didn't have to sit still and listen, if I like, if I would have been very happy. So instead of, I guess, giving it as much focus as I should have, I started working. So I started working in all kinds of different odd jobs where I was a program evaluator and going to schools all over the city. I was doing, um, you know, research. I was helping prepare for a STEM, new, new STEM teaching preparation program, which, which was a Wilson Fellowship Foundation, which is hard to say. Um, and it was quite funny because on one end, I was like learning about like best practices for research and, you know, critical theory before it was a bad thing, you know, all these things. And then the other end, I was like in these places where I was building and I was interacting and I was creating scalable solutions. And I just wanted to do that more. So I ended up leaving a PhD program after four years. Maybe I should have figured out this a little bit sooner. And um, that led me to start working in ed tech. And through ed tech, I moved quite quickly in terms of like building different types of products. Um, and it randomly, and I mean randomly, after a 10 minute conversation at a networking event, uh, I ended up a CEO of an ed tech in Australia, having never been to Australia. So, you know, really kind of wild ride, um, learned a lot in a very like, unique situation. I don't suggest being a first time CEO in a country you've never been to before, before lockdown. Um, so it was pretty crazy. And so that's kind of how I started working, how I moved from teaching to like leadership in a tech. And then that led me to my work in AI for education. But look at this. We got to that point where you were talking about how you'd gone from being obviously ed tech and then how you then moved into AI. So present day, what is it that you do uh, regarding AI at this moment in time? I mean, that's an interesting question. I think it's more like, what do we not do? Um, because this field of generative AI is something that is like unprecedented in terms of the speed to which a transformative technology is in the hands of consumers across the world um, without really any um, kind of stepped process. Like most people think of the, the most complex thing that we do with our computers is like Google. Like we like know, like, you know, I'm sure people in your life are really good at Googling, like they can get to that thing really fast and they use their own tips and tricks or get at like critical thinking around finding that. But that was really for the most people, like that's the most technically savvy we are. Um, and so when you have something like generative AI, which suddenly becomes everyone can be a computer scientist because English is the the, the language, right? The computer language, um, it becomes really interesting, but it, there isn't like any space in which you can take like what I already knew about the world and technology and then go and do it. And so what we're finding is that, you know, it, it took five years or six years for Facebook to have a hundred million users. It took five months for ChatGPT to have a hundred million users. So, you know, we're talking at a speed of like, you know, magnitude higher. So what we do at AI for Education it really just started because I was building a generative AI tool because I, I, I'm a published researcher and I've developed a well-being tool before and I care deeply about student and teacher well-being. So I was like, oh, okay. So there's something to be said about having, you know, an, uh, some, uh, some kind of connection that doesn't get bored, doesn't get tired, doesn't care my background, but just is there to kind of be and, and support students. And when I was doing that, I realized a couple of things. One is this technology is actually not very good yet. Um, it's not very reliable. It has a lot of problems, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But the other part is that I think that there was just such an indication to me that there was no 
real chance of us adopting a, a, a technology that would do something like student well-being without understanding what the underlying technology was first. Like, how can we actually think about what generative AI is and then supporting adoption across systems and, and educators? So we just started with a prompt library. And it's quite funny because I didn't even know what a prompt library was. I I thought about this a couple of weeks ago and realized I just made something up, which I think is the moment we're at where I didn't even take time to look. Sorry, researchers out there that take their time. But I just put like, what do I think is a prompt library? I built it. We put it into the world um, in April. And since then, um, we've been able to support like almost like 70,000 people have used our prompt library across the world. We have um, been able to work with districts and systems all over the world, including the UK, um, around what it means to be like responsibly adopt AI or at least navigate it to start so that you have this ability to bring in this transformative technology in ways that hopefully do not harm, but actually provide good for teachers and students. Yeah, you've, I'm interested. I'm interested here because you've mentioned like around the world uh, and obviously with the podcast International Classroom, it's not very often we get to speak to people all the way in America and think about what education is and how it looks over there with you. So what is the landscape of AI that you're seeing in the different districts and areas across America? Um, I would say it's probably significantly more similar to the UK than than not, um, uh, based on what I know. The right now, their vast the vast majority of schools and systems do not have anything in place in terms of AI policies, guidelines, or um, kind of worked examples of what's what's possible and what should be done. And so, I think that right now, the the, the most recent research says about like one out of 10 schools has done training on AI in any kind of con like considerate and targeted way in the U.S. And so we're talking about, a, you know, the school year's already started. Um, we have major districts with no policy in the place. We have places in which banning still exists of ChatGPT, which is really the only approved tool that goes below 18 in terms of these foundational chatbots like Claude. Um, perplexity, uh, Bard and Bing. And so what we're seeing is this like pretty wide variety of haven't done anything yet from like wait and see to like teachers can do it to like we're going to ban that that tends to be the majority of um, the system here in the U.S. And then there's a small system, like a small portion that's focused on like early adoption you know, responsibly embracing, at least putting some guidelines in place. But I am, every time I talk to a, a system leader or a school leader and they're willing to do this work with us or someone else, I'm like, you know, I shake my hands and say, thank goodness, I'm so glad because, you know, our, our deep worry is that most schools won't do anything in the U.S., but also internationally until it's too late, which is when the semester has gotten to a point of assessment and like summative assessment when AI is going to be used in, in deep and subtle ways um, for students to cognitively offload some of that work um, that could really deeply impact not only their learning, but also their relationships with their teacher. Yeah, because uh, I suppose that's the concern, isn't it, in terms of when we think now about the gaps that are occurring. And it'd be interesting to get your take on this, because obviously you mentioned previously about ethics and, and equitable adoption of this. Do you see gaps already starting to appear between those who are using it and those who aren't? 
Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, you can look at Australia as an example. So, you know, my background has kept me where I can still have a bit of a pulse. And the majority of those that have not banned the tool and have any regulations in place are independent schools. So fee-based schools have really taken a step. And because they're almost through their school year, they're really good kind of like canary the coal mine of like what's happening. So there's been major banning in the state's departments, and then there has been real adoption in uh, the independent school network. In fact, the majority of those like kind of thought leaders in Australia are educators in are leaders in independent schools. So there's a pretty good example there. In the U.S., we see something similar where there are independent schools or you know fee-based schools that are kind of adopting this. But then we also see it in pockets in which some districts are adopting it and some districts aren't. And so you see a really kind of scattershot approach of like what this looks like where there's really no continuity. I don't know. I would say that Right now, there's such little use or thoughtful use across the board that it isn't quite inequitous yet, but there is a real path where you can see, for example, I was talking to an organization that's building like a walled garden approach to ChatGPT, and they have six pilot schools in the U.S. And can you guess how many of them are independent schools? hundred percent. So, you know, that like, so they're, you know, so early adopters leaning into technology have the funding to be able to support it ongoing. And we also see just even more than that is that some of these tools are not even available. So like Claude and Bard are not available in some countries. And then you have other tools that have been essentially like kind of uh, degraded in terms of their, their, their outputs because of EU regulations, where you start to see some real like lack of, of equity across the whole system that has nothing to do with schools, but just in terms of like systems themselves, regulations, the countries, the, the bottom line for the organizations, how much money they can make, et cetera. Yeah. It's interesting because we can't, we can't get clawed here in the UAE. Um, so obviously trying to find other ways around it or other systems that you can use. And I was listening to, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, something silly, but he's the founder of, uh, deep mind. So I think Google, so he was on a podcast recently and he was talking about like, these systems and the ones that are at now in terms of how much, what do they call it? It's like, I can't think what the actual term of the data storage is not a gigabyte. It's like a Pico or something ridiculous about the size of them and how now over six months they have just got smaller and smaller and smaller. Like, so, you know, what was once at the cutting edge of technology is now six months or, you know, like GPT three type of thing. Originally it's like that's being used and is so much more accessible by others, but it, it does kind of make you think then about, you know, who has access to what and what's free versus what's paid. So if you were, you know, if you had your way, if you were able to kind of wave that magic wand, as it were, or, or kind of you were in control of it, what would you like to see happening? Let's start with America. What would you like to see happening across the States then regarding that situation? Uh, well, first, I would like us to remove the rhetoric that the genie is out of the bottle and it's a, or a runaway train or like that these systems are in the world now and all we have to do is kind of you know, catch up and or learn about them or get on board instead of thinking that these tools are actually like I can go to a data center right now and turn off like processing power. And the reason why I say that is that there is this need for like really deep understanding of like what these tools are, what they're capable of, what they're not capable of and like how they need to be regulated. And so, you know, there are really deep flaws in these systems that it's very hard for people to understand. Like we talk about hallucinations, which is which is, I think, 
some really bad or really good branding, depending on what you think. But hallucinations are when a chat GPT or a foundational model essentially predicts something and doesn't tell you, I don't know, or I don't have a high degree of confidence. Instead, it says, this is right. I will rate it. I will go down to my grave saying this is right a hundred times and it will be wrong. And it can be wrong in subtle and, and, you know, very fascinating ways. And this is both a feature and a bug. So it means something that like, we can't just take hallucinations out because if we took hallucinations out, the tools wouldn't work or be interesting and creative. But it does mean that like these tools are actually really, can be really deeply flawed and are really deeply flawed and everything built on top of them are deeply flawed. And so every tool that's built on a foundational model has the same issues around hallucinations, algorithmic bias, bias of training data, et cetera. And I think that's something we don't understand, because especially if we're using something that doesn't look like ChatGPT, but is using that technology. So and what I say about that is like, so when you talk about big tech and you heard the deep mind guy was like, it's already there. We're going to have, you know, even better AI and like, you know, get on board, embrace, et cetera. But what we wanted, what I would like to do is have us actually take a step back and say, like, what do these things mean? How should they be thought about? How should they regulate it? But also incentivize these huge GPU rich companies to do better and to create more ethical um, ethical uh, tools. Because if we don't do this now, there's definitely not going to be something like five years down the road. We're suddenly going to be able to, like, regulate this into ethics we can see that from the internet. We can see that from social media. Like once, like, like if you leave it too long, it becomes something that is almost impossible to unpick and to provide really like strong guidance on how these tools are developed, used and regulated. So that's one. And I think that's like very important. Good. Now I was going to say regulation seems to be a key word that has been coming up a lot in the last probably month or so um, that often kind of coincides with this term of containment. Uh, do we need to contain and regulate AI? So let's go further from education. We're talking now as a whole, um, because now we're talking about what you can actually access information wise from chat GPT or these different AI models and the information, high degree of information you can get. Do we need to, to regulate and contain what is actually in them and who actually has access to them so that it's almost like the internet to some extent with parental controls or being flagged if you're searching up, let's say, inappropriate things. I remember when I was a child, this is going back into the UK, and you're going back 30 years, 35 years, let's say, yeah, 30 years, so 10, 15 and one of the things you could get online at the point, all my friends, these young teenagers were talking about, it's like on the internet, it's like there's this thing called the terrorist handbook and it will teach you how to, teach you how to make a bomb. Do we need to then regulate and contain the type of information that AI is going to be able to give to our students and give out to other people? Yeah. Well, so this is quite interesting. A couple of ideas around this. One is that these are black box tools. So outside of like a context window, like that you're using on ChatGPT, like the, the bot doesn't remember, like in the way that we, like it's not a thinking bot, it is a computing bot. And, you know, there are so many ways in which these tools work that we don't understand. Like we can't go back and unpick exactly why an answer was given or not given. We can do, like there, there are ways to get to some approximation of that. But what that does, these black box solutions make it very, very difficult to be able to regulate or contain like you're talking about. So, for example, um, Conmigo, which is Khan Academy's tool, is built on ChatGPT and it has fine tuning and 
it has like, you know, training that like that's happened to make it safer and more responsible for students to use, but it can be easily hijacked. So for example, at ISTE, we was talking to a technologist that was able to convince this bot to not tell it how to build a bomb, but to compare and contrast it. And so like to another type, like a Molotov cocktail, so that it still told him how to build the Molotov cocktail, but not in a direct, like, can you build this for me? And this is a, you know, a tool that's being built and is going to be monetized very quickly. And we could talk about why that is a problem later. But then there's also this question about like even tools like Merlin Mine that are building towards these new models that have lower hallucinations and less inappropriate content, like containing it in that way with wall garden approaches, they're actually just blocking certain types of questions to be able to lower inappropriate content. So for example, um, you know, if you ask about religion, like it will, it'll flag it as inappropriate content. But what if you're a teacher that's teaching about religion? Like, and then like, so, you know, there are these, these questions about like, what does it actually mean to be able to create these systems that are just predictive engines that are really, really good at making stuff up that seems right and can be right to be able to contain them so that you're not, they're not easily hijacked, that they're not easy, that they're easily contained, that they are accurate and reliable there's a really good chance we don't get there with generative AI, but there's some other version of this coming where we're layering certain components of generative AI that are really great, like the interaction, the creative component with more traditional or new AI tools or machine learning tools that allow for us to actually do that containment or create that safer piece. But like, if you look right now, I tell people all the time, I would not pay for one generative AI tool right now no matter what, other than ChatGPT4, because I run a company and I have to show it, um, because these tools are not very good, they're not very reliable, and they actually are extremely biased and can create harm. And I think that that's something that for now, people don't see the kind of like cool part of it, right? Or think about containment, but realistically are not understanding that these are like deeply fall, flawed technologies that actually maybe can't be fixed or not be fixed in the way we're talking about it right now. I'm excited to share that our guest Amanda Bickerstaff will also be speaking at an event I'm hosting for AI for Educators. This free event is taking place in Dubai on November the 4th and will showcase how artificial intelligence can be practically implemented in classrooms and schools. Educators at all levels and backgrounds are welcome to attend. You're going to hear from Amanda as well as other AI experts about real-world examples, see hands-on demos and leave with actionable strategies to integrate AI into your teaching. Whether you're curious about AI or already using it, this event will give you new insights and inspiration. The space is limited, so be sure to register now using the link in the description. I hope to see many of you listeners there. It's going to be a great day of learning and connecting. Back to the episode. Do you think then it's an, it's important that teachers and school leaders understand that and understand how the generative AI actually works? Oh yeah. I mean, if I had my magic wand and a bazillion dollars, like if I was OpenAI, uh, what I would be doing is I would be doing two things. One thing that if I was OpenAI is I would be providing AI literacy training freely and widely available uh, in meaningful and thoughtful ways. And so, for example, like OpenAI put out a teaching toolkit with four prompts and a couple of FAQs. 
that is not digital literacy training. Um, and so like there is this opportunity, I think, to bring everybody up to actually understand like what it means to what does generative AI do? What is its capabilities? What its limitations? But also like if you put your stuff into like generative AI, it's using it to train. So like there is a guy that Samsung example where someone used it to code a piece of intellectual property. And then it was that solution was given to somebody else. Um, and so, you know, this is something in which, you know, we it's really important to understand. It's also, I think, a really opportunity. We never have really done this. We've never really done a big push into digital literacy across the world. Like we didn't, we haven't really taught people what it means, like the axiom of like, if it's free, you're the product and what it means when but your data is freely available and what you're sharing and what it can mean. Like this could be an opportunity to reset and actually create a more digitally capable and like a digitally um, equitable society. So I think that's one thing. And I would love for like OpenAI and other organizations, which are making a boatload of money off of this, to put some money behind that. On the other end, I think it's like the idea of, of clear guidelines to understand the capabilities, limitations and ethical uses. And so, you know, if I had that magic wand, I would, you know, I don't think that we need a 50 page document. I think we need like a two page document for schools and systems it's, or even people. It says, here's what it is. Here's how it works. Here's how to use it responsibly. Here are the limitations. And then here are some worked examples of what this means in your own life. So if like you're a parent and you're using it for a certain thing or you're a teacher or you're a student, and I think if we could do that in a two-page document <laughs> and get that into as many hands as possible in a culturally responsive and thoughtful way, like we've been doing pretty good. I mean, and it's, you know, a two-page document is pretty easy to update when things change too. And so I think that that's what I would do is like the training side, but also these very simple worked example guidelines that are not theoretical, but are deeply practical to the person's experience could really help us actually become more digitally literate and be able to meet the moment of generative AI. I look forward to seeing your two page document coming out soon. <laughs> it's probably, probably going to happen. <laughs> I get kind of angry. Um, like, like in a build stuff, like I actually build stuff out of like, like anger. Um, so I, I read the UNESCO report that came out last week or this week, and I found it really hard to understand and read. And so I literally on Sunday morning wrote, wrote down like a paper outline as like a response, because I think that's my reaction to like frustration is, can we build something to put out that maybe is slightly better or more practical? So it, it'll probably happen, Alex. I look forward to it. There's been a few people like that have done that. And I think you're probably in the very similar LinkedIn bubble that I'm in, in terms of our professional learning network and who we connect with. We just assume that everyone's doing this, that everyone's read this UNESCO report and understands sort of the, the five key takeaways from it. But actually that's not happening, is it? It's we're in this bubble, you know, and we're connecting with people that use it day in, day out. And actually we forget that there's probably 70% of the teaching cohort out there that aren't and don't do that. So it's quite an interesting one then for a teacher. I've got a couple of questions from what you've said, because going back, like first thing is about ethics. I really want to sort of drill down onto that because it's a term we hear a lot and teachers who are now getting into AI kind of see that as a great assistant. It's, it's shiny, it's new, it can really help and assist me with my time and my efficiency and be effective. Yes, all those things. But what does it mean when we talk about ethics in AI? 
Yeah. So there are a couple of key areas that are really important to understand. One is that these models are what makes them so interesting, but also makes them deeply unethical as a way that they are created and trained. And so, like you said, like if you're on LinkedIn, you you know what this is. But if you're in a classroom or even in a, a school leadership position, you probably don't. And so these are, you know, when we look at ChatGPT 3.5, 4, Claude, et cetera, what they're, essentially they're trained on like the internet. So ChatGPT 3.5 was trained on like the internet, essentially, and text. And then ChatGPT 4 was trained on the internet with text and image. So that's one of the reasons why the reasoning power and capacity of ChatGPT 4 is much better. There's also significantly more training that happens through the parameters. It's like a, you know, a magnitude better. But what happens is, I don't know about you, but I don't, you know, think of the internet and go, you know what, that is a fair place that has a balanced approach to gender, to religion, to sex. Like, that is not what I think. I think, oh my goodness gracious, you know, Wild Wild West, you talked about the terrorist handbook, like there are all kinds of ways in which the internet can be the, the, the reflection of our worst selves, right? An echo chamber, um, a place in which we can radicalize, et cetera. And so, you know, some of my favorite things that ChatGPT was trained on was like the Enron papers. Great. Let's talk about that. Um, it was trained on, you know, an enormous amount of information that was never, that is not publicly available, that was behind paywalls and like, you know, people put it like putting up PDFs of copyrighted material and it's trolling. So we have these kind of questions around the copyright and plagiarism component of these training data sets. But then also we have these subtle ways in which bias is perpetuated. So can you guess the number of uh, like male editors on Wikipedia, which is one of the main training sources? Or the number of redditors that are male. Could you like any guesses? Uh, I imagine it's ninety-five percent. It's eighty percent on you know. It's eighty percent on Wikipedia. It's majority on like. So these are very very high and primarily global north and uh, like non-minority. So, but the reason why I say that is like, I was surprised by it because you think of Wikipedia as like a trusted source, but like how it's being written, who's writing it, who's owning that pen actually makes a difference to what, what information is prioritized, privilege, et cetera. So we have this like very, very biased, both, both implicitly, explicitly subtle and big that has been used to train these systems. And so there are some places in which the ethics of even just what the output can be. So there's been a couple of ways in which this has played out. One is that it's really easy to still see this on uh, text to image generators like Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, et cetera, where if you ask it a question about a person, like give me a hundred examples of a teacher or a judge or a CEO, what will end up happening is those 100 examples will be very, very stereotyped. So, for example, one of the things that stood out to me, so, you know, social workers, disproportionately women and people of color, prisoners, the people of color, disproportionately, CEOs, white males, disproportionately. Um, but my favorite one was judges. So American judges, there were 100, asked for 100. There were three women and 100 judges. Uh, there are 34% of all female of all judges in the U.S. are female. So we're talking like 10 times wrong. Um, and so there's that component of it. And then there are also these biases that where some of these systems will spout political, like will be on a political spectrum. So there was another study that said that like llama, like so like Meta's um, tools are more socially conservative, whereas OpenAI's tools are more socially 
liberal. And so, and so there are these, like, again, if you use them, you probably wouldn't see that on your naked eye, but if you are using them in subtle ways, it could potentially be something that is perpetuating these biases. So that can be really difficult. So I think that that's probably the number one thing that we don't see because very rarely will it just like, it's, it's trained to be appropriate. So if you ask it like, a direct question of like around race or religion, it, it will be like, I can't answer or this isn't right. But it's very easy to get around that and actually have it spout things that are like deeply, deeply biased. So that's one thing of ethics. I could probably do an entire podcast as an ethics. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good to know. It's because this is the, this is the conundrum I face. Like I am obviously why we're talking about it is because I'm a big advocate for using it in my, my job in terms of teaching. I use it to help come up with tasks. Um, but that's one thing. And now I've started looking outwardly at how can I support my students in learning how to use this? Um, and I think that's, that's kind of the next role of teachers is, is, is going to get to that, you know, rather than just letting students randomly use it, it's how can I support them? How can I, train them, teach them, show them successfully how to use it. And I need to understand those things. Um, and ethics is obviously something that comes into it um, and being able to have those conversations with them because as with most schools, and obviously we're here in the UAE and it's lots of people are talking about it. And then going back to the UNESCO report you talked about, it's this idea of a, a blueprint for responsible use, isn't it? Um, and this idea of ethics and understanding the biases and the pitfalls that kind of, those those parts are, uh, are flagged up in the report, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I, and I think that I was surprised, though. Um, it only mentioned hallucinations by name twice. Um, and it mentioned, so this is a 48-page paper. It mentioned biases 25 times. It mentions cheating twice. So uh, I always, like, kind of, like, read something and then try to, like, see, like, if my, you know, my, uh, experience is the same. And so the reason why I say that is it talks quite a bit about like making up stuff, but it doesn't really actually define like what are common hallucinations, how it can be impactful, why it's important. So hallucination again is like when it, we call it, it could be like gaslighting. It could be like straight up, like lying to you, like, you know, with a very like happy face and a lot of confidence, um, and so what, what, what happens is these hallucinations become in some cases incredibly subtle. And so you're talking about being a teacher or a student, there have been people that have, there's been lawyers who've been disbarred and, or have been sanctioned. There have been doctors that have gotten in trouble. There have been professors and teachers that have gotten embarrassed by submitting, you know, facts, figures, citations, URLs that are wrong. One of my favorite things is to do in a training is to show how th these tools are computing, not thinking, and how that they hallucinate. And so I enjoy it. I, I enjoy doing this because it can be quite funny and it's a really good takeaway. But for example, like I was in a training once where I, you know, I'm a science teacher by trade. So mitosis and meiosis is kind of the first thing I go to when I think of like some of these demos. And so I was like, okay, you know, ChatGPT, build me a lesson plan with five URLs for mitosis and meiosis. And it built them and they looked great and they had the right URL and I clicked on it and it was a teacher's pay teachers um, page with just a picture of a cat. And I don't know how that exists, to be honest, that there's just a straight up picture of a cat somewhere and I will never find it again. But I think that this is an example, like if I was a teacher or a student and it looked right and I'm supposed to find five sources and I wasn't being that careful, it can very easily mean that I am submitting false work 
um, and or get embarrassed. Like new, like teachers, if we go up and we're supposed to be, you know, an expert, a guide, a sage, whatever you want to, like wherever your like role is. Um, if you come up there and then like you have a video you're playing and it's like something completely different and maybe inappropriate, like imagine what that can mean. And the same thing for a student who's presenting something as their that they've done a lot of good work on, but then they relied on this tool to tell them the truth, so to speak. And actually what it, this tool does is it doesn't actually tell the truth. It just predicts what looks like the truth. Like that could be something that like it can be deeply like, you know, unethical, but actually can just be accidentally unethical. Like you, I could be an expert on something and just not check one thing and be caught in an, in an unethical piece where I'm putting something out that doesn't work, isn't right, could be damaging. And I think that that's where the subtlety of like what you're talking about of like why you need to teach students to be critical consumers, but also you like as an educator and working with people like you have to, to also be critical and ensure that the people around you are also critical because that like one little thing could turn into 10, 15, 20 things. If that person's like that, it's, I always think of like the, the one fact we all know that like 10 years later we find out was wrong, like, or a lyric that was wrong that we thought we would sing at the top of our lungs. Like imagine that network effect where you put it into a lesson plan. It looks right. It gets shared and then it goes on and it's in like a thousand places where that cat, you know, URL is now a part of everyone's live and embarrassing them and live in a lesson. I'm laughing at that because at the moment, um, one of my daughters is this song, it's called Gold that goes around. And it's the, the breakup in the chorus is really hard to try and ascertain what it's what it says. We had to Google it to try and get the lyrics. But uh I think that the actual lyric is Roof is on fire. And it sounds really that but uh her her word is doofus boy. So because <laughs> it sounds like she's just saying doofus. That's why I was smiling so much at it. Um but it's just she's one of those things. So I mean I'm really, really long time. <laughs> Well, no, it just made me smile, but we checked it out and she just went by what it sounds like um, rather than obviously once we checked it out, she was fine with that. But we still like singing it because it's fun. In fact, she's right here now. Just just peeking. There she is. <laughs> this is the one talking about it. Um, you can wave and say hello. Hello. Hi. All right. <laughs> so the what, the point of the question I was going to ask before that kind of like uh, interlude, as it were, was based on all those things which kind of sounds if you break it down as a teacher and you're seeing that you'd be like oh i'm not going to go near it i don't trust it uh it just sounds perverse it sounds dodgy it's i don't understand it you know i'm going to stay off it and we're hearing that now in terms of the differences teachers who can uh you know because it's all this it's going to take over our jobs it's going to take over these careers and the idea is that you still need a humanization you still need a human touch and it's about teachers who can use AI versus teachers who don't or won't. So for those people listening, let's try and give them some pathway into this in, in terms of that. What would be kind of your advice for those ones out there who want to get educated and want to get trained? What would be your first couple of steps? What would be your advice to them on what to do? Okay, great. The first thing is, is that, you know, it, it is a bit dodgy. It is a bit these types of things. It's the generative AI is the worst it will ever be right now. The today, yesterday, the day before. It is a brand new technology. It is it is transformative. It is a magnitude of different from what we've seen before in consumer facing technology. And that's okay. But what it does is that allows us to be together at this point in time to actually build literacy together. And so I always say that this is a show not tell moment. And so 
you know, I don't consider like thought leadership without practical applications to be any place in the system. If you're on LinkedIn, you probably can see that like, you know, for me, like we're more interested in like talking about things and then showing things. And the reason is, is that when you can show the power that generative AI can have for teachers or even students in, in thoughtful and directed and structured ways, you will get a reaction from like hands up in the air, mouth open. This is changing my life. I love you. Like I hear this all the time. I also hear like, you know, oh my gosh. And like this, you can see the wheels turning because even though it has all of these limitations, there are certain things it does really well and really fast. And it can do something that can allow you as a teacher or a student to target what you do and to remove the time that you spend on mundane and routine tasks that are low level and repetitive. So for example, you know, we might have a great lesson, but we don't have like we every year we have to create a new set of like, you know, handouts or vocabulous or a change in the differentiation or we differentiate based on our students, which would take a lot of time. And so while being thoughtful about what information you share, like you can create, like one of we did a, you know, a session in person in a low income school in Queens last week, we have a prompt in our prompt library, which is a whole bunch of free prompts that you can use on any, any um, large language model or chatbot. It was an exit ticket. And so she did it once and she was like, I got three good options. And her response was not, I'm going to pick the best, but now I can give my students these three and they can choose which one they use. And it's just like that slight next step. She Not only did she create the exit tickets quicker, they were higher quality because they're very simple. Like so the more simple things you ask ChatGPT other tools to do in a well-framed prompt, the better out the output's going to be. And also now she's giving choice where choice wasn't there. And we know how important choice is for students' engagement, their learning, et cetera. And so I think that, and even their engagement with their teacher, right? If they give them choice, there's a better chance that that student's going to have a relationship with that student, because the teacher, because it feels like they have agency. So I think that that really, to me, like what I suggest is like, so Alex, what is your least favorite thing to do? Like, what do you really dislike doing as a teacher? That is something that is, you know, text-based, that is something that you do a lot that you can structure. And for me, it was rubrics. And if you know anything about me is that I hate rubrics. Um, if you've listened to any of our stuff before. Um, and so for us, what we did is we like actually like my first ever prompt was building a rubric. And in one sentence, and only did it build me a rubric, but it put it in a table and my life was changed and AI for education was born. And I think that that's where like starting with like really what is the thing that is most difficult for you that's routinized and, and, and can be replicated? Like, can you do that with prompting with a chatbot? No, for me, it's um, how I've been using it is to do with kind of adaptive teaching. So the biggest the biggest challenge I always face is I have a task and and now this this term of differentiation is gone. And I never liked it really anyway. But it's always like this, the, the goalpost is exactly the same. We need to get you to the same point. But actually, the way in which you get there or the task I give you to get there, I need to adapt. I need to modify. It needs to fit in with you. And that's the biggest thing that I found ChatGPT to be a massive help for is being able to adapt language or those. Like, there's one of the, the transcribe from YouTube, if you've come across it. And you can take the video and it will transcribe it straight into ChatGPT. Um, and you can put that the questions then you can can really adapt the questions and say right give me five mid higher and or five level twos level fours level sixes and the language it comes out with that for me is the biggest time saver 
Um, and that with other te- that with combined with other technologies that help you then, you know, share the workload without printing or kids don't realize they're getting these things. Like I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of OneNote. That for me is is a huge time saver from a, so I kind of just consider it my teaching assistant. Um, and then other times ideation are oh, some of the things that can come up with for steam or ideas or projects that I would never have thought of. Um, is, is a huge, huge time saver for me. And I think looking at it from teachers, it's then, it's some ways it's good to have like people like yourself, who genuine companies who are putting stuff out for free and get on and use versus those who are kind of like trial and error. And it needs to be a happy mesh of the two. Because um, although, let's say, for example, the, the Cotsmore AI Festival took place, I think it was Cotsmore, but that took place recently and that was really good. And you saw that online. There isn't yet enough of those things taking place. So if you're going to schools and talking about PD, professional development, professional learning, it's like, who is your AI guy in your school? Who is leading on these things? And we're not quite there yet. And so it can be challenging for teachers. And I think for them, it's just a case of just make a start, go on and have a look at something, go and watch a YouTube video, just have it in a play and, and, and just start, I think is probably the key thing for it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's why I think our prompt library has been so successful because it is actually the way that we structure it. It's so prompt engineering is the, is the way that you use natural language or in the case of us, English to essentially prompt a computer tool, which in this case is chatbot to give you out an output that is one that you want. And so there's actually a technique to it. And so it can take a lot of time. In fact, I just saw today a poll for one of these big AI newsletters about how many prompts does it take you to get to a good output. And it's usually like more than eight. It's not something that happens in the first or second go, even with a great prompt, because what you do is you can refine the more you refine and adapt. But you can start with if you start with a good prompt, you're going to get a better output and it will be significantly faster and maybe a little less frustrating. And so we have this prompt library, but it has is just, you know, we talked about ideation. STEM is a great one. We have a STEM unit plan or science demos like sometimes those things can be really hard because what you'd have to do is go through like 100 web pages or talk to people but i just want to say i I want to create a you know a a great recycling unit um, that focuses on fashion and sports and so i want 10 like short activities i can do with students just to get an idea and like you start to see these crazy things where like you can have fashion shows and you know you can have debates and like create your own like label or like your own like pitch for a new, you know, recycled uh, fashion line or something on those lines, which we could probably get to, but not in 10 seconds. And the reason why like we build it is that it actually gives you an opportunity to, we give you that prompt, but then we give you a version that you can change. So I can now, it doesn't have to be recycling. It could be uh, the great, the civil war. It could be um, the great emo war in Australia, which is still one of my favorite things that ever happened. Um, and then, but, and what I can do is I can change my interests. Right. And so what ends up happening is you can see like the way that you make it work for you. But then what we have is tips and strategies about like, okay, now that you have the activity ideas, have it build you an activity plan, have it build you a differentiated version, have it build you a vocabulary list, have it create a version in which students actually build their own activities. Like, and it, the reason why we do that is that whatever you are on the level of like AI literacy from, I just want a place to start and I got it from here to like, what are all the possibilities? Or I just want to see it in practice. I just want to see what it can do. It kind of covers all those bases. And what we've seen is that then if you can build that that kind of basic prompt engineering ability, 
the the outcomes are going to be much, much better than even some of these tools that are coming out that can be really like low cognitive load for teachers, where it's like, here are all these 50 prompts and engines, but usually you can't refine them. So now like what we say is like, you can use this in any way and you can get to an outcome really, really well that works directly for you. And the, the transformative nature of generative AI is that it can be really targeted to you, whether you're the teacher, the student, the industry leader, you give it the right information and the right prompt while protecting your privately identifiable information, personally identifiable information. You can have like a business plan. You could have a lesson plan. You can have a student study guide that is like Alex's guide, Amanda's guide, and it will be something that's meaningful and targeted, which is really just the most exciting thing I think about what's possible right now. Yeah, I'm interested in that in terms of your thoughts about possibilities right now, then, because you mentioned then almost like you've got different levels of teachers from AI novice to kind of AI competency up to AI mastery. And I'm starting to see some of those. And so I'm interested now from your perspective, for those who are competent, proficient, gaining mastery, what are the exciting things on the horizon? What are you seeing as emerging applications in AI that these people who are confident will get excited about? I'll do two. One is that you don't have to have any AI literacy to get excited about and one that you do. So I'll start with the the, the latter. Um, things like building your own chatbot. Um, I love watching and seeing people like that are building their own chatbots or tools with productivity suites. Like you can you can use different tools out there. Like you can create chat, you know, chatbots or chat based or play lab. You can create new like websites you can do you can do all this creative stuff right through ai which is pretty cool and i love to see like you know create a socratic tutor or a conversational chatbot for historical figures like there are plenty of tools out there to do that and i think that that gets really exciting um i know people if you you can essentially use the api in google docs or google spreadsheet to help you if you needed 10 do nows you can use that and actually create an API in with an API key. It's a couple of dollars to do the compute, but it can build you 10 do nows in Google in Google spreadsheet with one prompt. And it'll just put it into the different, like, you know, the cells. There's some really cool stuff there. And watch out for your students doing this with discussion boards. I bet it's going to happen where they're going to try, they're going to take the API key and they're going to put in all their discussion boards and they're going to get responses. So just, just be aware. On the other end is like, I am most excited about tools like we talked about at the top of this that are not just using generative AI. They're using like there's not going to be one model that's going to win. I think it's going to be multiple models. And it's going to be a combination of classical and deterministic AI, machine learning, deep learning, generative AI, computer vision, all these things. Right. And that's where we get really exciting. So, for example, early reading, early math, remediation. These tools are not 10 years away from being deeply personalized to students, both in their zone of proximal development, but also within their personal like needs around engagement and interest. Like where I like, you know, an early reading tool that can accurately assess which words, you know, and don't know your fluency, your comprehension, and then build you a book that is not only like just for you in terms of the content, but also Alex is now the king unicorn I'm assuming you love unicorns. Everyone loves unicorns, Alex. Um, that is the center of his own story. That, and that this is something in which I think we're not that far away from. We're, we're talking like 12 to 18 months before these tools are really to market in strong ways. And these kind of personal agents or tutors or assistants are coming. And that could be and that's something in which like if it's done in a really thoughtful, ethical way, that's using generative AI as like 
around the edges to build new books or to, you know, like whatever may have you in structured, safe wall garden approaches. Like how cool is that going to be? And I, I've been talking to a student that's 17 and, you know, at a, on Tuesday in an AI policy session. And I said something like this and he said, I've always wanted to be the hero of my own story. Like, oh man, like how cool would that have been? And you just saw his like eyes light up and just be like, how, like you could just see him thinking like it could have been in books and math. Like, and I think that that's where the power really is going to lie. It's not right now, but like, hopefully like if we talked again in a year to two years, I'd be able to list a set of like tools that are really starting to transform foundational skill building, student engagement, even teacher like training engagement and support. That's amazing. Yeah. You've, you've, taken my last question there in terms of the future of education and the changing educational landscape um you've answered all those parts for us so um i've got an interesting one to finish with is there anything that you feel we've missed is there anything important that we haven't talked about that you think we need to um i think that it really is just important for us to normalize that we're all learning together and that there's no right answer and that we are in an unprecedented time where we have a, a technology that is set to transform every part of our lives that is doing so in a very, very fast fashion with a technology that's not actually good yet. <laughs> so it's like saying like, you know, like, you know, self-driving cars don't really work. But what if everyone had a self-driving car, you know, like and there's there's some real like questions about what that would happen. Right. And I think that while that is not necessarily the case in which we're going to see a lot of car crashes, we are going to see significant and deep impacts of this, whether that is misinformation for you know, we saw it in Maui was an example. I was just reading about this. There were these huge um, fires in Maui and there was Chinese disinformation using artificial intelligence text to image generators that made it look like these fires were caused by Americans and it was military action. And so this just happened like three weeks ago. This is when the fire was. And so we're starting to see how like this technology can be hijacked. It can be used in ways that are, that are, can be really deeply negatively impactful, some in subtle and some in aggressive ways. And, and the reason being is that it's so early. And so while there are these awesome opportunities to be, uh, to, to learn and to build and to create better systems for students and teachers to save time, to lower burnout, to have students get one-on-one -on -one support at midnight on their essay, like things of that nature, like those are really exciting. But the other end, this is our opportunity as educators and ethical educators to really make a strong statement about what's appropriate and inappropriate and to, to be part of the conversation. And so, like, not, let's not expect like if we're going to use ChatGPT and others, let's have a voice where we're not just going to give them our data, like systems are not just going to give them their data. Like it has to be a commitment to creating better systems so that we don't see these deeply unethical and difficult um uh, like results that could happen, not just in the world, like in elections, but actually happen in schools around, you know, the way in which uh, students are taught, they learn, they communicate, etc. So I just think that for me, like, it is an opportunity for us to know that we're learning together, but that we have to deeply understand that this is a moment in time that we have agency. We can say very loudly what is appropriate and not appropriate. We can say we are not buying your tool, Microsoft. We're not buying your tool, Bard 
our Google until it is better. Like that is something that we can say as educators and which with the currency that matters, which is money. So like for me, like I get really excited about this opportunity to talk about these things because the more that we know about the technology, the more ethically we can understand it and the more that digital literacy, maybe we can actually be part of the moment and not be an afterthought, which is often what happens in terms of consumers and definitely consumers in education. And I think that is a perfect way to end this podcast. Um, Amanda, it's been an absolute pleasure and very, very insightful uh, to listen to you speak. And I'm sure you're probably going to say this, that you could go on for hours more about it because you're very, very passionate and very informed, very educated about what's going on with this. Um, and if people want to learn more, people uh, out there, teachers listening or anyone else from that, um, where can they go to find more of your content specifically? Sure. Okay. So AI for education.io um, has, we have our prompt library. We have free resources around policy, around student use, a free curriculum around student digital literacy. Um, we also have a free course, which has been taken over the last six weeks by about 2,500 people from across the world, which is pretty cool. Um, and then I'm like super on LinkedIn. Uh, it wasn't intended to. Like I actually didn't post on LinkedIn for almost a year um, after I left my last job. But now I'm very on LinkedIn, which is how I met Alex. Um, so I've tried to... We post a lot there, like really try to create some practical applications of what this looks like. And we do webinars and videos and content. And I think that that is a great way to kind of stay involved. Um, and but yeah, we, like so I, I would love for everyone to do is just if you haven't used ChatGPT, open it up, sign up and give it what your least, if it's a rubric or whatever, what is your least favorite thing to do as a teacher that you can routinize and try it out and just get that moment of crystallization and then from there, it's all about learning and like just trying it out. That's amazing. Thank you, Amanda. Really, really appreciate your time coming to speak to us today and for all the wonderful work that you're doing with uh, AI and ChatGPT and helping to educate the educators out there. So thank you. <laughs>